0: A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N podsurvey.com slash art of man thanks for your help Cormac McCarthy died last week at the age of 89 to commemorate his passing we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite episodes about one of my favorite books The Road please enjoy Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, once a year, I read The Road by Cormac McCarthy. It's become this cathartic annual ritual for me. What is it about this novel that has such an impact on my soul and those of other readers? Who is the man who wrote it, and what was he trying to do with the story of a father and son struggling to survive in a post-apocalyptic landscape? For answers to these questions, I decided to talk to a foremost expert on McCarthy's work, as well as the literature of the American West in general. His name is Stephen Fry. He's a professor of English, a novelist in his own right, and the author and editor Several books about the reclusive philosophical author, including Understanding Cormac McCarthy. We begin our conversation with some background on McCarthy and a discussion of his distinctive style and themes and why he avoids the limelight and prefers to hang out with scientists over fellow artists. We then dive into the road. And Steve unpacked what inspired it, as well as the authors and books that influenced it. We then dig into the big themes of The Road and how it can be read as a biblical allegory that wrestles with the existence of God. We delve into the tension which exists between the Father and Son in the book and what it means to carry the fire. And we're in a conversation with why reading The Road makes you feel both depressed and hopeful at the same time. And a spoiler alert here, if you haven't read The Road yet, we do reveal some of the plot points in this discussion. Also, why haven't you read The Road yet? Go out, and pick up a copy today, read it, we won't regret it, then come back and listen to this episode. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is/slash the road. All right, Steve Fry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. So, you are a professor of American literature, and you spent a lot of your career thinking about and writing about the works of Cormac McCarthy, one of my favorite writers. Uh, How do you end up writing about Cormac McCarthy? Well, you know, like a lot of folks, I encountered McCarthy
1: first in 1992 with uh, what most of us consider his breakout novel, that is All the Pretty Horses. He won the National Book Award for that one. And at the time, I was in graduate school, finishing up my doctorate. And what I was studying in graduate school was the 19th century, the frontier novel of the 19th century. But I was also pretty heavily involved in studying Melville and Moby Dick. And I had a parallel interest in the literature of the American West because I'm from the West. And a friend of mine just said, hey, you know, you should read this author, Cormac McCarthy, who just won the National Book Award. So I did. I read All the Pretty Horses. And boy, I was just enraptured, certainly with the language, but also with the kind of philosophical portent and, you know, the themes that were sort of jumping out at me. And so I moved back immediately in Red Blood Meridian had a similar response. It's a different book, a different response, but still I was enraptured with it. And then I kind of continued on, finished my, my doctoral program, became a professor and was doing most of my work in the 19th century. And I just followed McCarthy through as the Border Trilogy came out. And just kind of a slow burn, just enjoying it, wasn't what I was necessarily specializing in. But in sort of the late 90s, I went to a Cormac McCarthy panel. I presented on a Cormac McCarthy panel at the American Literature Association and met with some of the founders of the organization and sort of got involved with that group of folks and went back and read everything. And there's a real connection between McCarthy as a 20th century writer and the 19th century. Of course, he's famous in his First major interview with Richard Woodward in 1992. He he you know he said quite openly that his favorite book was was Moby Dick. So I hooked into it at that
0: point, and uh, it's been almost 30 years now. So, So today I'd like to focus in on one novel, The Road. But before we do, let's talk about some background on McCarthy and what he was like when as a child, as a young man, and kind of his themes and his style of writing. So. Let's start with his childhood. Where did McCarthy grow up? What was his childhood like? Were there any signs as a a young man that he'd become one of the greatest living American novelists ever?
1: Well, you know, there were, but not particularly the signs that you might expect of of a writer. He was born in in, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and moved to Knoxville, Tennessee when he was four years old. His father was a lawyer for the Tennessee Valley Authority. And, of course, that was Roosevelt's project to modernize the region down in the south. This is eastern Tennessee. He grew up in an upper middle class family, went to parochial school. And there's no real evidence that he was all that involved in reading. But he is quoted as saying that nobody in school really had that many hobbies, but he had all the hobbies that, that you could even name. And so this, there was this innate curiosity that if we, we look in retrospect, you know, could, could manifest itself in all kinds of different vocations. But for McCarthy, that curiosity led him to reading a lot and then sort of incorporating and considering all that he's encountering as he reads in the things he writes about, particularly philosophy, theology, science, all these varied subjects. So, no, there wasn't the standard, you know, ambition to write when he was a young boy, but an innate curiosity that he, I think, just, you know, has existed throughout his life.
0: So as a young boy, wasn't much of a writer, wasn't much a reader. He gets into college. It seems like he started just reading a ton. And mm-hmm. that's when he started to write. What was his first works like? Well, you know, they,
1: they bear the marks of, of his later works. You know, I, I've heard that he you know, he doesn't like the idea that, that that people dig them out and read them. But he has two short stories that he published in the Phoenix, which was a, a school newspaper there at the University of Tennessee. That's where he went to school in two different stints. Uh, actually, I should say that that he went for a while to University of Tennessee. Then he left and went into the Air Force and came back. And it's when he came back that he began writing. He wrote a a short story called Wake for Susan, another short story called A Drowning Incident. And he won an award, a campus award for that. And that seems to have kind of got him going with writing. They have the same kind of rural settings, same preoccupation with the grotesque with violence, with intense human emotion, abnormal kind of responses to circumstances, and also the same kind of lyricism and focus on language that we would associate with uh, really all of his works. And when did he start experiencing
0: popular and critical success as
1: a writer? Well, really, he didn't experience popular success until 1992 with all the pretty horses but he experienced critical success really in in 1965 with the orchard keeper. Uh, his first editor was Albert Erskine who was William Faulkner's former editor and he got all kinds of or at least a number of grants and scholarships and funding from the Guggenheim and the Faulkner Foundation. It was in 1982 in fact that he won a MacArthur genius grant which is, you know, pretty big. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't get much bigger than that. And yet his novels had not, did not sell up until, I believe it was All the Pretty Horses. None of his novels sold more than 5,000 copies in hardback. So he was, he was critically very accepted and very lauded, but not popular
0: until All the Pretty Horses. So one thing that if someone who reads a Cormac McCarthy novel will notice that his writing style is very distinct. It's very different for example, the road has no quotation marks. Mm -hmm. So the dialogue is you're just reading it, but it it's, it's kind of jarring at first, but then it just, it feels normal and natural beyond that. Like not using quotation marks. Is there something distinct about McCarthy's writing style that you see in all of his works? And how do you think you develop that?
1: Well, I think you developed it by reading a lot and writing a lot. That sounds glib and silly, but the fact is that's how you do it. And you said distinctive. That's it's utterly distinctive. And what characterizes it is, first of all, sometimes he's a minimalist, sometimes his style becomes ornate, he does not use a lot of subordination, he uses a heck of a lot of parallelisms, polysyndeton, which is the linking together of of uh, independent clauses with a conjunction and. I think he derives that a lot from Hemingway and Faulkner. They both use that technique. So I think he developed it, again, by reading it, maybe even a kind of unconscious level, reading some of his favorite authors. But at the same time, his blending of this minimalism with very, very sometimes ornate and sometimes even obtuse language I think is very self-conscious. He uses um, sometimes a very archaic vocabulary, a specialized vocabulary. And I frankly don't think he intends us necessarily to be sitting there with a dictionary. I think one of the reasons why he might, if you don't mind, Brett, right, what I want to do is if I could, I'd like to read a passage to explain. Yeah, that'd be great. Perfect. Okay, good. This one, this passage comes from his second novel, which is The Orchard Keeper. And in this novel, an infant child has been left in the woods to die. And the narrator describes the child in this way as it's laying there. It says, It howled execration upon the dim camarine world of its nativity, wail on wail, while he lay there gibbering with palsied jaw hasps, his hands putting back the night like some witless paraclete, beleaguered with all limbo's clamor. Now, that ornateness and that that kind of language, I, I'm actually teaching that novel or finished teaching that novel to a group of graduate students, and one student called out that very passage, it's a very famous passage in McCarthy, and very politely but, but uh, reasonably asked, why not say it a different way? I don't entirely understand what he's doing. And so what I had the students do is I said, all right, let's do an experiment, a thought experiment. Why don't we try to translate that into a more understandable language. And so I had the students do that, and they're great students, but they were really reluctant to share their translations because they all intuited the fact that you can't take a phrase or or a term like witless paraclete. How do you translate that? Do you say um, uh, unintelligent Holy Spirit? because that's what it means, right? And yet that term, witless paraclete, really evokes a sense of mystery, strangeness, and and a kind of metaphysical dread. He's untranslatable, and I think he tries to be. And part of it is to to sort of evoke this sense of mystery and the strange.
0: Okay, so his writing style, it's varied. It can be mysterious. It can be a mixture of plain spokenness with kind of an archaic language that's his writing style. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about themes. You mentioned some of his themes earlier on, dealing with the grotesque, with violence. What else what are some of the other themes you see pop up over and over again in McCarthy's works?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things I would say about McCarthy is that he is a philosophical novelist. And not all novelists, not all serious novelists, what I call a philosophical novelist. And what I mean by that is that he deliberately engages existing philosophical systems, cosmological systems, places them in the context of a narrative, and sort of sees how they play out. And of course, the one of the biggest issues you we confront in, in philosophy is metaphysics and the question of, you know, does God exist? But more than that, I mean, not only does God exist, but what is God's nature? Does God care for us? Is God in any way anthropomorphic in his emotions? Um, Is God just a cosmic joker, as Melville pondered? So metaphysics and the question of our relationship to the divine or lack thereof is central to his works. Uh, Epistemology, right, the question of knowledge. So uh, he will will say over and over over again, he refers to to people's minds as things in and of themselves. So the question is, as a thing out there in nature, can the mind know all that there is to know? about the very universe that that the mind exists within. and that's a question that he's that he he seeks to answer without ever you know fully answering it. all of this is not abstract in McCarthy because these questions, I mean, I like to think of it this way. Uh, when I was a small child, I had a nightmare at some point in time, and my Missouri grandmother, who had a third-grade education, said something like, uh, I don't know, something like, Steve, remember the lilies of the field. God's there to protect you. He'll take care of you. And I've thought about that, and it seems like a cliche, but my grandmother, with her third-grade education, was a philosopher. She had a worldview, and she thought about that worldview. And that worldview was conditioned by the fact that she lost a child. It was part of how she coped with that. That's what McCarthy's about. It's about taking philosophical ideas, placing them in narrative, and in doing so, seeing how those ideas shake out in the lives of people. And so metaphysics and epistemology, but then he he confronts us with something fundamental, and that is that we exist in a violent world. How does that experience, how should that experience condition how we think about meaning, uh, purpose, you know, and value? And in the midst of all of that, we see this, especially in the road, there's this emphasis on human community and brotherhood and paternal love, you know, those kinds of things.
0: Well, going back to this idea of the exploration of violence, one of the things that always strikes me about McCarthy and his treatment of violence, you read it. And it's very jarring. But at the same time, you're reading, you're like, well, there's nothing... He's not really grotesque about mm-hmm. it. But for some... The way he's able to use language, you just... You feel... the Like in the road. Uh, he doesn't get really detailed in the gory details too much. But you're you're left with the impression... You all see this in No Country for Old Men. You're left with this impression like, boy, something really bad just happened. And you mm-hmm. kind of... You feel it viscerally.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That, that's true. I, I think... I've listened a number of times to He's got a, an interview or he does a three-way interview with Werner Herzog and another scientist. I, I don't remember the scientist's name. And Herzog was very, um, you know, very complimentary and McCarthy almost to the point where he, he, seemed, you know, politely embarrassed, but you know, Herzog said that he, something like he, and ins- by his, his strange, unique, and totally distinctive use of language, he sort of ascribes a world into being. So it, On the one hand, you look at it and you think, well, this is not, you know, in scare quotes, um, realistic particularly. But in a sense, it's not objectively realistic. It's not how we necessarily sort of see the world. But I think McCarthy starts to capture in these moments of violence, intense violence, how we might feel the world, right? How we might fully experience that moment beyond simple sight and and smell or taste, but the sort of extrasensory psychological perceptions. I think that's what he's about, is sort of creating a sense of the horrific that is not simply
0: sensory but psychological. So you mentioned his interest in epistemology and metaphysics. This some people don't know this about McCarthy. He's like a he works at the Santa Fe Institute, which is sort of like the science. Institute. What's a novelist doing at the Santa Fe Institute where they're exploring issues of science? Well, I think there was some serendipity. One,
1: McCarthy's known for not really liking to hang out with artists or writers. He much prefers to hang out with with scientists. When he won the MacArthur Genius Grant, he met Murray Gelman, who was a founder of the Santa Fe Institute, and they became friends. And Murray Gelman is a Nobel Prize winning physicist. So it's through that relationship that he got involved with the Santa Fe Institute, was already living in the Southwest. And he became involved there probably for the same reason that when he was a small child, he had more hobbies than anybody else. And that science and all of these questions became uh, just central to to what he wanted to inquire into. And so he's a fellow there. uh, He writes there or has for a number of, of years, helps people edit their work. He's done that a bit. And also the Santa Fe Institute itself is a a sort of cutting edge institute that's dedicated to complexity science. That is complex systems theory in a multidisciplinary kind of uh, taking a kind of multidisciplinary approach. So this idea, what they used to call chaos theory, now they tend to call it complex adaptive systems, that really is a science But it also has these pretty powerful implications when it comes to questions of determinism versus free will, which are themes that have preoccupied him. So he's interested, I think, in seeing how that stuff plays out, right, in the physical world and in the scientific realm. I think it it comforts him a bit because science offers at least a limited kind of certitude. And he said that, that, you know, he likes that some things you can boil down to facts.
0: Okay, you mentioned that he doesn't like to hang out with other writers and artists. He generally he's a, he's reclusive. He avoids the spotlight. He's done very few interviews. Why is that? Is there just something about his personality just doesn't like the spotlight?
1: Well, I, anything I would say about that would be would be pretty speculative yeah, sure. because because you know we don't there is no biography on him and and uh, and and what we know we we have to sort of extrapolate a little bit from the few interviews that he's given. My sense of it though is is that it's, that he's, it's, it's an aspect of personality. You know, some people just don't like the spotlight. Some people don't like to speak publicly. Some people just revel in that. And there's a sense that he doesn't, doesn't care for, for that kind of celebrity. But I also think that there's a strong sense that, that too much celebrity and too much engagement with other people who are commenting on your work can have a corrosive effect upon the work itself. And I think my sense is that he is a consummate artist. As much as he doesn't necessarily want to hang out with other ones, he's utterly uncompromising in his commitment to his art and was, you know, again, he was in his 60s before he really started, you know, making any real money at it and, and yet maintained that, that, that commitment so, yeah, I do think that it's both. I think it's an aspect of personality, but I also think that there's there's a sense that an almost, well, a very practical sense that it could compromise what you're trying to do with yourself as an artist.
0: No, that makes sense. I've noticed my favorite writers. So McCarthy, uh, Larry McMurtry, Wendell Berry, mm-hmm. they all are kind of, like, they don't they don't get out in the spotlight very much. And I I, right. I wonder if it, I, I'm sure it's personality, but I think, I wonder if it also for McMurtry, if, you know, he just passed away this past year. Right. If it was for him, the same sort of thing, it would, he didn't want it to corrupt his work in a way. Yeah.
1: McMurtry just wanted to own a bookstore.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. He just you wanted know, to own a bookstore. in two places.
1: And he, you know, he, you know, he was, you know, very popular in terms of having his novels adapted into cinema and, and really fine, fine films that came out of McMurtry's work. But uh, still, I think there was kind of the same thing with McCarthy, a sense of, of, uh, of I'm doing something that I, I, I know what I'm doing, and I, I should not
0: compromise it by too much chatter. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit Suits start started just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities, so sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factory, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factory meals in the K-Household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time. Uh, to, to take care of dinner, and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com/slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com/slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. All right, so let's dig into the road because this is my favorite novel. And I think it's a great, if you've never read Cormac McCarthy, it's a great one to start out with. It's, um... It, it made it was turned into a movie. It came out in two thousand and six. General plot is that it's there's a nameless father and a nameless son traveling through a post apocalyptic landscape in America somewhere in the southeast, and they're just trying to survive. Do we know what inspired McCarthy to write the road? Was there something that happened to him?
1: Well, he tells us actually in his one TV interview, and if I'm recalling it, I think I'll get the outlines of it pretty pretty correct. Uh, that he was with his his young son at the time. He had a son late, John Francis, who was probably eight or 10 years old at the time. And he was in a hotel with his son who was sleeping on the bed. And McCarthy says he was looking out the window late at night, and he imagined what the world might look like 50 or 100 years from at that moment. And uh, that, I, I think, you know, standing between his son and that idea inspired the road which he wrote fairly quickly it didn't take him that long. so that moment is part of what inspired him but I think clearly what what inspired him at, at a deeper level is is having his second son at that age in a time when it seemed to have a pretty pretty
0: profound impact on him. and, and how's the road similar to McCarthy's previous works and, and how is it different? Well, stylistically, it's somewhat different. I
1: think that McCarthy's associated with a kind of ornate style, or at least that's what people comment on when they look at his earlier works. If you look at those works, you see a kind of minimalism there, too, in different places. But the road is much more overtly minimalist and much more conscious of the legacy of Hemingway. There's even a couple of places in the road, one where the father recalls a time where a cat is uh, sheltering under a, a table or something, and um, that recalls Hemingway's cat in the rain. He, the father recalls a moment when the boy is being born. And the narrator in, in The Thoughts of the Man says, her screams don't matter or something to that effect. And that is a direct reference to Hemingway's Indian camp. So you have this minimalist style, and I, I think the the more ornate, more, I suppose, the more archaic style is a smaller percentage of the road Uh, so stylistically it's actually very different but I I think in so many ways the road is a culmination of the kinds of things that he's been thinking about all the way since 1965 and the kind of things that many or most of us think about as we
0: sort of go through a life you know yeah, so you mentioned uh, the, the influence of Hemingway. McCarthy famously said, books are made of books. Besides Hemingway, were there any other authors of books that influenced the road?
1: Well, of course, McCarthy in general, his favorite book is, is Moby Dick, which he reads quite consciously, uh, or, or I think quite often. But I think, and, and f- many folks haven't talked about this, McCarthy mentions his admiration for Dostoevsky. And we have to remember that The Road was written... Roughly at the same time that McCarthy wrote *The Sunset Limited*, that is his play, and Dostoevsky, of course, was a an Orthodox Christian writer, but coming out of an existential tradition. And I think that the brothers Karamazov is a pretty direct influence on *The Road*. And in the brothers Karamazov, you have two brothers that that debate the existence and the nature of God. Ivan, the atheist, says he will not believe as long as one child suffers. Uh, And Alyosha really doesn't have a response to that except to try to live a good life. And I think that basic question, that basic dynamic and concern is at the center of this novel, which is very much about a child
0: who is suffering.
1: So yeah, Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov, I think in particular, so let's talk about themes.
0: I mean, what do you think are the big themes
1: in the road? Well, I think it's a book about uh, that's asking that fundamental question Does God exist? If God exists, what is my relationship to him? I think, and, and I should credit a friend of mine and a fellow scholar, Alan Josephs, who wrote an article called The Quest for God in the Road. He he published it in a, a collection of essays that I edited, The Cambridge Companion to Cormac McCarthy. And he actually teases out all of the references to God and to godlessness and demonstrates through this detailed textual analysis that the novel weighs, in a way that other McCarthy works don't, weighs in the direction of a belief in not only God, but Something on the order of a Christian God that is beneficent. And I think struggling with that question and tentatively resolving that question very tentatively is, I think, the central theme that is about. And the thing of it is that McCarthy's unsentimental about the question. And when I say that, I mean that oftentimes when people grapple, with or veer toward belief. They veer in the direction of a kind of sentimental conception of the divine. And that's not McCarthy. I think these these questions, can we find hope in a a world that all we have to do is look at CNN to see McCarthy's world, right? We see violence everywhere. And in the context of that, is it reasonable to, to be hopeful about human existence and the human experience. And I think McCarthy wants to ask that question in this novel, but he says, you know, if you're going to find hope, and I think he does, you have to find it after you have immersed yourself in an abyss. And if you find hope there, then it's a stalwart hope indeed. And that ultimately is, I think, how the novel plays out. Again, tentatively, and some disagree with me, and there's different ways to read it, but that's how I read it. Moving in the direction of a kind of Christian existentialism, in a way.
0: It's kind of *Kicker Guardian*, in a way. Yes,
1: exactly, yeah. exactly.
0: Oftentimes, the road has been compared to a biblical allegory because it's, it's, uh, by biblical in that tradition of biblical. It, it's, it's exploring these big questions of. of of existence, human existence, whether God exists, but it's also there's violence mixed in with it. Mm-hmm. maybe I'll top of your head. What are some examples, like very obvious examples of biblical references that we see pop up in the road? Well, with reference to the boy, he's quite you know clearly
1: configured as a Christ figure. Uh, He's associated, again, with the word of God. The the man describes him as a golden chalice. That is, uh, you know, a a liturgical image. The father refers to him directly when he's talking to the old man, Eli. He calls, he says, you know, what if I said he is a god? So, there's references to the boy as a Christ figure, and He also says that the sacred idiom is shorn of all reference, right? And so you might imagine that he's just using images of the divine as a figure of speech. But the boy, if you think about childhood, my experience with children when I was a child is they can be pretty brutal. They can be kind of nasty, The adults in my life have been much kinder to me than the kids were when I was a kid. But this child is kind. That's the essence of his being in an environment where it compromises his own security and survival to be that way. So he's configured as a Christ figure. That's a reference. The larger reference is the motif of the wilderness. Some folks have read the landscape itself as a kind of simple metaphor for a kind of cosmological void. And their reading is kind of a a sort of happy atheist reading. The idea is that, you know, okay, the world ends, we exist in a meaningless universe, but we can have a experience, a kind of contingent meaning in the relationships we have with people. And, you know, I don't want to just absolutely dismiss that reading. I think it's there. But I do think that you shouldn't read the landscape as a simple metaphor. He's reading it typologically. It is the same kind of wilderness that you find in the Old Testament where the Israelites are tested by God in a desert before they're delivered ultimately to their mission and to their understanding of their role in the world. And the same thing that Christ experiences in the wilderness, when he goes for 40 days and 40 nights, where he's quite literally tempted by Satan. Here you have the man being tempted by this character, Eli, who tries to tempt him into hopelessness, a kind of Satan figure. So, the boy is Christ figure, all of this kind of liturgical and eucharistic imagery, and also this broad leit motif of the wilderness, that I think should be read typologically.
0: No, there's a great example of the boy being a Christ figure. So there's this scene. I'm gonna. I'll read the dialogue here. Sure. It's the father's talking to the boy. It says the man squatted and looked at him. I'm scared, he said. Do you understand? I'm scared. The boy didn't answer. He just sat there with his head bowed, sobbing. You're not the one who has to worry about everything. The boy said something, but he couldn't understand him. What, he said? He looked up, his wet and grimy face. Yes, I am, he said. I am the one. Uh, the I am the one is the, the Christ reference.
1: Well, you understand that, Brett, because you read it precisely as it needs to be read. Okay, and that is the emphasis on the final statement, I am the one. Right. You placed a real emphasis on that. Uh, and and I, I suppose you don't have to do that. But for example, and you know, I I like some things about the cinematic adaptation, but there's things I don't like about it. And in that adaptation, Hillcote had the boy say, I am the one, okay? Instead of the more portentous, I am the one. Right? Ending on one is you're right about that. That's a point where where he's you know announcing himself not in an arrogant way not even in a in a in a fully aware way he's not saying i'm god but he is saying i'm playing the role of a kind of christ in a decimated
0: world and that is i'm trying to bring peace to it and benevolence well after the, you finished I me mean, have you been able to figure out you know mccarthy's view on god well i take him at his own word In other words, McCarthy said
1: when he was uh, interviewed about the road, he said, uh, you know, when he was asked, you know, have you got the whole God thing figured out? He said, well, it, it depends upon what day you ask me. He said, I think it's good to pray. You don't have to have a clear idea of who or what God is to pray. You might even be quite doubtful about the whole business. I think that McCarthy's content to be doubtful. He says in a later interview, he said that that he has a great admiration for the spiritual view of life. He said, he's asked, uh, is the God in the road, the God you encountered when you were in Catholic school? And McCarthy said, it may be, but he associates spirituality with being decent and with being ethical. And he says that in the same interview. He wants to be a more spiritual person in order to be a better person. So I do think McCarthy is content to sort of embrace what is genuinely our ethical, our existential condition, which is we simply don't know the answer to that question in any kind of a solid or empirical way. We can take various leaps of faith, but ultimately they are leaps, and he's content to, to rest in that uncertainty, but... He has a real sympathy for a theistic view of the world. Now, again, he experiments with ideas, and I think he's experimenting with a kind of Christ, Christian existentialism in the road. But he's experimenting with Gnosticism in, in Blood Meridian and other things and in other books. So, what I would say is, I would attach the term heterodox yeah. to McCarthy with respect to the God question.
0: Well, and it seems to, something he does with this book is that he he finds the divine in the relationship between the father and the son. And it's almost this relationship between the father and son. It's almost a, it's a materialist spirituality, mm-hmm. you know, because like, it's just, you see over and over again, the the father, you know, holding the boy, wiping blood off and gore off the boy's head, the boy pleading out for the, the father. And so it, it is a very, it's a very visceral, very grounded in nature thing that's going on, but there's also a, like, it's tinged with spirituality at the same time. Well, no, you're totally right. I mean, that's,
1: that is, that comes, I think, pretty clear toward the end of the book. Remember in the book when, when the man is, is dying and he's talking to the boy and he says to the boy, he says, you know what, you're going to be okay. And it's pretty clear that the man is confident that the boy will be in quotes, lucky, will be okay. And that goodness will find him. But what the man says, too, is he says, look, you have to talk to me. And if you make it like talk, you will hear me respond to you. I will talk back to you. And the boy says, okay. He's, of course, discovered by the family. And he encounters a woman. And I'll go ahead and read what the woman says, if you don't mind. Sure. She says, "He first of all, the boy is, is well, here's what the woman says. She says, she would talk to him sometimes about God. He tried to talk to God, but the best thing was to talk to his father, and he did talk to him, and he didn't forget. The woman said that was all right. She said the breath of God was his breath yet, though it passed from man to man through all of time. And that is the end of the plotted novel before the mysterious kind of epilogue. The idea there is not, you could imagine someone who is from a more maybe traditional Christian perspective saying, well, okay, you can go ahead and talk to your father, but keep trying to talk to God too. That's not what the woman says. What the woman says is, or essentially what she implies is that as you talk to your father, you are talking to God. Because God was physically and in a very real way manifest in the relationship you had with your father and the love that bound you together. So God is not in some abstract other place. He's right there wherever we find ourselves bound to each other by love. And when I use the term love, I I mean it. I don't think this is a, this is for McCarthy. This is not a kind of, um, a kind of, you know, give me a hug love. It's not sentimental. No, it's not sentimental at all. It's I will kill anyone who touches you. Love, and and that kind of conception of div- of the divine and of mercy is all over Flannery O'Connor, all over any number of other authors who are who are grappling with this kind of Christian existentialism. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a material manifestation of the divine. It doesn't mean that the divine isn't out there somewhere else, but it is here and now. Do we see God? every time we see each other would be the claim from this worldview. Um, And again, it's obviously very conjectural and I don't know that McCarthy uh, believes it at every moment in his life, but
0: he put it in play in this novel. So there's this deep and abiding love between father and son, but throughout the novel, you see a tension between them as well. Um, They kind of get in these very tense, like they don't, Yell at each other very often, Mm -hmm. but there's definitely a tension. Like, what is the source of the tension? Well, I,
1: yeah, that's a tough one. To I, it's not really much more complex than the fact that the father feels like he's the one that has to handle things, nothing will get done and their fate is in his hands. The father's trajectory toward this kind of moment at the end where there's this sort of guarded but powerful kind of belief uh, is not a thing that the father has early on. He believes that what's going to happen is going to happen because he does it. The boy believes that they have a deeper and greater responsibility to do what's right outside of the survival impulse. And that's, you know, that's part of McCarthy's sort of grappling with post-Darwinian things. You know, what kind of responsibility do we have when all the strictures of civilization are stripped away? Does that responsibility
0: remain? And for the boy, it does. And that's, I think, the source of their tension. And there's also an alienation. There's like this scene where the father's looking at the boy and the father realizes, I'm, pretty much an alien to my son like he i'm from a completely different planet because i knew the i knew the world before this gray hellscape has descended and so there's gonna be a there's gonna be a gap from us com- like all the time i i felt like that with my own kids like there'll be moments yeah. where i'll look at them and i'm like they don't know like there it is it's like they don't i they don't know the world that i know like i don't think we'll ever be able to close that gap completely
1: no no, and and I think that that's part of the of the the blend of of philosophical and psychological questions, because I think what there's something that's very almost allegorical about their relationship, as real as it as it comes comes to us in in their various expressions to one another. I mean, Brett, you know, I would say you're putting it well. In other words, that is our condition, right? You can never, I have I have two grown children. I love them deeply. I actually first read this novel when my son was almost exactly the same age. So pretty much floored me in that context. But at the same time, the idea is we can never enter into another consciousness, that's an existential condition as well, right? I mean, we're always alienated from each other. No one knows what we're feeling, perceiving, or even if we're perceiving in the same way. And I think uh that's a part of the philosophical underpinnings of the novel.
0: Right. It goes to that epistemology question that yeah, McCarthy exactly. has explored. Exactly.
1: And the oh. question of subjective versus objective knowledge. You know, we can we can both, you know, pick up the modem that's in front of me and 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 say it's a modem, but but the deeper things that go to the question of what it means to to know something at a subjective level, to, to feel something and experience something is an entirely different thing.
0: So let's talk about the most famous line from the road. That's uh carry the fire. It's something the father and the son tell each other that they're doing, that they're carrying this fire. What is the fire? Did McCarthy did he, you know, tip his hand and like lay his cards out? This is what the fire is, or do you can you just sort of suss that out from reading the book? Sure, sure. You know. I think he wants it
1: to be an evocative image of 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 divinity at one level, but how that divinity is is fully defined, it's it's an obtuse and strange enough image that it allows for us to read it in different ways. What's interesting is that McCarthy's been toying with that image for decades. It appears all the way back in some of his earliest novels. But it really appears, and there's a kind of a through line that appears with the epilogue to Blood Meridian. And after a bunch of horrific stuff has happened, you have this epilogue that's outside the plotted novel, and you've got this group of figures that are walking through a a nighttime desert landscape, and they're using some kind of implement to strike the ground and release the fire that, quote, God has put there. And then, and then the epilogue just ends, but it's a fire that God has put there. And then at the end of No Country for Old Men, Ed Tom Bell has a dream about his father and they're riding out in the wilderness and the father rides past him with a gourd that has fire in it. And the father passes him and it becomes dark again, but he has this strange kind of faith that the father will be waiting for him in all that cold and all that dark. So again, um, w- with all the, the sort of God stuff that is playing out in these later novels, I think the idea of embodying it in a, an image that is both simultaneously evocative and mysterious. Remember that the final word of the novel, and I think the final word uh, that might be on McCarthy, is mystery related to this metaphysical question but at the same time i think it is an evocative image of at least a potential divinity
0: yeah yeah i can see that and and for me i also see carrying the fire as maintaining goodness it's it's doing the right thing even in really dark times because you know in the novel you know some people they use the societal collapse as an excuse to give in to their worst impulses. I mean, there's these gangs of baby-eating barbarians going around, and the boy and the father—they're not. They're trying not to give in to that. They're trying to be what they call the good guys. So, throughout the novel, you hear them encouraging each other, saying, "You know, we're the good guys." And the son's always asking, "We're the good guys, right?" So they're trying to maintain goodness, keeping keeping the flame of it alive. And the father's trying to pass that down to his son. So it's that. I mean, and to me, every time I read about carrying the fire, it's, I, I see hope. It's hope. It's hope when everything seems hopeless. That's, that's the fire. And the guy
1: wearing the parka at the end,
0: oddly enough,
1: seems to know what he means. Finally, he says, Yeah, we're carrying the fire.
0: Yeah. They're one of the good guys.
1: Yeah. They're one of the good guys. That's right.
0: Well, I'd like to read, it's my favorite scene. And every time I probably will start falling like a, a baby after I read this, but it's it, it really sums it up. It's at the very end. The father's dying. He's got, you know, it sounds like tuberculosis, some kind of lung problem. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to his, his son. And the son says, I want to be with you. You can't. Please, you can't. You have to carry the fire. I don't know how to. Yes, you do. Is it real, the fire? Yes, it is. Where is it? I don't know where it is. Yes, you do. <laughs> Sorry. It's inside you. It's always been there. I can see it. Just take me with you, please. I can't. Please, Papa. I can't. I can't hold my son dead in my arms. I thought I could, but I can't. You said you would never leave me. I know. I'm sorry. You have my whole heart. You always did. You're the best guy. You always were. If, not, if I'm not here to talk, if, if I'm not here, you can still talk to me. You can talk to me and I'll talk to you. You'll see. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, no apologies necessary.
1: You know, I've had that response a, 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 a number of times myself, especially the first time that I read it. And that uh, that is, a, you know, just a, you know, you know that's, it's, a, it's a moment that, that anyone, anyone who loves anyone, whether it's a, a child or, or whoever you know is going to be you know affected by by that moment and i think that for all of, of my discussion of these philosophical themes i think the point to be made there is is that those themes don't mean anything to us uh, or don't mean as much to us until we live a life until we encounter other human beings then all these metaphysical and epistemological questions become real in a very intimate way. And I think that's McCarthy's purpose. He doesn't see philosophy as an obtuse thing for long bearded men. He sees it as a thing that, that, you know, 65 year old third grade educated women from Missouri experience, right. When they're talking to their grandson, Uh, these are, that's what it means to be human. We ask these questions. We can't help it. And we have these kinds of experiences, right? So it's, yeah, that's a very human moment. No apologies necessary.
0: No. Yeah. The, the, you're the best guy. That's the part that just, cause that's what, yeah. I, call my, that's what I call my son. It's my little yeah. guy. Yeah. So what is it about the, I've, I read this probably once a year. I, every time I read it, I bawl at that part. I start mm-hmm. crying. I feel depressed, but at the same time, I feel really hopeful after I finish it. What do you think is going on there? What do you think McCarthy's ultimate message is with this book? Well, in, in, I think that you're feeling
1: depressed. I think for for reasons that are that are are in some sense common to everyone, and that is that McCarthy creates a world that very well could come into being. And it could come into being because we're struck by a meteor. It could come into being because we don't take care of the world ourselves. Uh, we don't know what caused the cataclysm, but it's a it's a potentiality that is there. And that's that makes us sad. That makes us depressed. But what's hopeful, I think, in it, and why I consider it a tremendously, well, not tremendously hopeful book, but a hopeful book. There's a kind of circumscribed hope is that we all carry the fire. We all care for one another. We all are capable of committing to one another. We're all capable of of going on, even when it absolutely makes no sense to in this particular uh, situation. McCarthy himself said, what he wants us to take away from this novel is that we should be grateful for what we have. And I think you might feel positive when you read that book, because you probably almost immediately look around at the things that you have and you say, uh, thank whatever, maybe God, maybe circumstance,
0: but I'm grateful. And what it's a, it's a gratitude that's not abstract. It's a very visceral gratitude. And I think again, that goes back to McCarthy's materialist, I guess, framework that he might have.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, and that's his point is to take ideas that articulated by philosophers, remain abstract and to put them into play in human lives.
0: Well, Steve, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for listening to me, Blubber, like a baby. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, where could people go to learn more about the book and your work, or just what your, your work in general? I work in general.
1: Well, I have a website, stephenfry.org, with a V, not to be confused with the British comedian. I have, uh, so, you know, I invite folks to visit that, where most of, of what I've done in book link form is there. I have a couple other books on McCarthy edited collections. One is the Cambridge Companion to Cormac McCarthy. The other is Cormac McCarthy in Context, again, both by Cambridge University Press. I also edited the Cambridge Companion to the Literature of the American West. And recently, I've also published a novel called Dogwood Crossing. It's a frontier novel and a family saga set in 1798, just before the Louisiana Purchase, uh, it's about a family that travels from North Carolina to Missouri and all that that entails. Uh, Kirkus called it. Kirkus Reviews called it engaging, melancholy, and chilling. So,
0: if that appeals to folks, I encourage them to give it a look. If you like McCarthy, then you'll like you're like Dogwood Crossing. <laughs> well, Steve, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Brad. I appreciate it. My guest today was Stephen Fry. He's the author of several books about the works of Cormac McCarthy, including Understanding Cormac McCarthy. He's also got a novel out, Dogwood Crossing, all available on amazon.com. Check that out. Also, you can learn more information about his work at his website, stephenfry.org. And check out our show notes at awmis slash the road, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanlist.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you could do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to StitcherPremium.com, sign up, use code to at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time this is brett mckay remind you to only listen they Win podcast but put what you've heard into action